0: You're listening to the Alchemy of Self podcast with Zah. The world is currently in a state of rebirth. All of the systems we have inherited are collapsing and failing us as a species. It's time for us to come together and create something out of nothing. If you crave deeper purpose, unshakable strength, and a life aligned with your truth, this is for you. This is for you if you are curious and not afraid to ask questions. This podcast is for those searching for their purpose and those ready to step into their full potential. For lovers of truth and those ready for masculine medicine, this podcast is an adventure that gives voice to a journey of healing, discovery, and embodiment. We'll challenge the old narratives we inherited and forge a new path. Join us in this fearless exploration of the multiple dimensions of being human, breathwork, mindset, healing the body, detox, and how to use the gentle way of jiu to make you unstoppable in your wellness, business, life, relationships, and more.
1: Tanner Larson is the founder of Build Grow Scale, an e-commerce optimization company that specializes in a process called revenue optimization to help brands scale profitably. He is also the author of a best-selling book, E-commerce evolved. Tanner is married to the love of his life, Tabitha. Aw. And together they have two kids, two dogs, two cats, two hermit crabs, and one fish. In his free time, Tanner loves to work out, read, fish, and compete in shooting competitions. Thank you for joining me, brother. And I I wanna say something really, I guess, weird that came to mind when I was reading that. (laughs) Um, Okay. That you guys will only have to go to court for the fish. Probably true. (laughs) Everything else, there's two of, bro. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on. I know you're super busy. I know you have a million people in your life that you take care of uh, in the business world and the personal world. So I appreciate you for coming on. Absolutely. No, excited to be here. Let's see what you do to me. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to jump right in. Do I have your permission to jump in? Let's do it. Perfect. What were you like as a kid growing up?
2: Oh, man. Um... You know, I like to pretend that I was an angel, but uh, you know, growing up, I was a very, um, very aggressive, very high energy, uh, very all over the place, wanting to do everything, be in everybody's place, face and just everything else. Um, my, uh, I have a huge family and uh, lots of cousins, lots of aunts, uncles, all that stuff. And we always get, we're a very, very close knit family. And the family consensus was when I was in my uh, twos and threes, they called me Hitler. Wow. Um, but yeah, so I was uh, pretty much a terror to everybody apparently in my family. Um, obviously they still loved me, but um, I was pretty much a, a huge handful uh, during, that, during that time. Um, as I got older, obviously I got easier to deal with and easier for me to you know, control myself and, and be a human. And, uh, but all through, the big thing for me was I was always very curious. I liked to try everything. Um, everything I tried I was very competitive at whether I was good or bad I still tried to be competitive and I tried to turn everything into a competition just because that's what I grew up knowing had a pretty like overall a happy childhood like I don't um, have any true like I didn't I grew up with both parents I didn't uh, both my parents were good to me Uh, you know mild neglect and from my dad a little bit but nothing like crazily traumatic yes that affected me and we learned about that later in life but um like my memories of my childhood were good like i have happiness and i don't have any real dark memories as a child
1: the beauty of that is right like we we all have our own experience Mm -hmm. and that's that's the magic of this life that we live you know like there's no mold (laughs) it (laughs) sounds (laughs) like you were breaking it sounds like in your childhood you were breaking the mold and they were just trying to fit you back in there and um, I don't know if people have seen you because I'll have a picture of you, but you're very muscular and very strong. And you have like a very powerful presence, almost like um, like powerful, strong, but like frenetic, like you would be like a fucking buzzsaw. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> that's, that, that's what your energy feels like. So I can imagine they, w- they would want to, to have broken you, religion, school. Yeah society like it's just
2: too much to handle all the time for almost everybody the intensity
1: the the, the you know as everybody else put it like he's crazy this guy's this is insane yeah insane crazy or crazy mm-hmm. insane i love it what did you want to be when you grew up like when you were a kid like what was the thing that you thought about being
2: oh man i, I went through the, the normal thing with it, like all kids do um i think the first one that I truly remember as something that I was excited about was in like fourth and fifth grade, I was determined to be a marine biologist. I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. Um, and then, um, the mo- but I mean, that was like a kid one, as I grew up, I, um, other things that really interested me. The one thing that I actually truly wanted to be was a Navy SEAL, um, because in, in my world of, of like, the way I looked at things, it was like, everything that I was like that crazy, like super intense kind of guy, it was, and the elite of the elite of those crazy, intense kind of guys. So um, I really, I, and I knew a couple Navy SEALs growing up, and I was like, "Guess this is what I want to do." Um, I actually went down to Coronado when I was old enough to go do like some of the, the pre-testing and stuff, and also did the medical and all of that. And before I even really got started, I was medically disqualified uh, because I had a, a eye disease called keratoconus, which allows the cornea to thin. And uh, so under pressure, like if I was scuba diving real deep or jumping out of airplanes real high, my cornea could theoretically explode. So right off the bat, they're like, yep, doesn't matter what else you can do. That's not a career you can have. So uh, those were the the main two growing up. Um, And then I was kind of all over the place in terms of jobs and things like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see your energy. I mean, yeah, for sure. Navy SEALs, right? Cause who joins the Navy SEALs? It's people that have yet to meet somebody in their life that beats the shit out of them worse than they do themselves. For sure. That, that's literally like, if you have beaten the shit out of yourself to an extent that's close to, or worse than what the Navy SEALs training is, you will pass. <laughs> but it's a very small group of men that very, do that very very small group yeah and
2: it was the I always I love challenges and that was like in my world at the time kind of the ultimate epitome of challenges that I could pit myself against yeah and obviously I never got that opportunity but uh it was still it's, it's still one of those things that it, it's a it's a what if like man wouldn't it have been cool to just see if I could have pulled that off
0: yeah
1: are you, are you open to like a perspective? It's something that comes up for me when you when you talk about uh the Navy SEALs and stuff. Yeah, totally. It feels almost like we're missing and I I I I want to say we as men in society are missing uh like a ritual to know that we're men. Like we don't have one. Like nobody tells you like all right, now you are a man. Yeah. No, that was just like high school child, college child. Okay. Get the fuck out, man, man. Yep. Yep. I and mean, you're a man like, by
2: age, not by accomplishment or deed.
1: Yeah. Or, or like the passing of the test, you know, like mm-hmm. the Jews have like uh, the bar mitzvah. I mean, it, it's very weak. Like what I would but want so, to talk, but still yeah, it's something, saying. you know, like something. And I'm sure like in African, there's some African cultures that stick your hand in like fire ants in like a yep. glove filled with fire ants. And like, that's that's kind of like what we need as men to know that we're men mm-hmm. like what can we endure agreed so yeah that that's like what really comes up for me like my heart sings when you say that yep what was your first thing that you fell in love with thing or person or uh, experience like and you were like i, I need more of that um
2: hmm so, you know, I mean, I think the, probably the, one of the first things that I fell in love with was um, a pet, a, a dog and stuff like that. But I think a better, in terms of if we look at it, like something I fell in love with because I didn't fall in love with my dog and be like, oh, I need another dog or more dogs. I just loved my dog and wanted to, you know, be with her and play with her and have her around all the time. Um, but in terms of like something that is like, oh, my God, I got to do more of that. I need to be around that or just, you know, go in, like dive in head first. So sports growing up for me were not really an option. Um, it's like, you're going to play sports and you're going to compete and you're going to be aggressive because my mom was kind of that person. She was an Olympic level swimmer and that kind of thing. So I'd say the first sport that I chose where it was just like, it's all I wanted to do and proceed and just, I was just infatuated and in love with it was uh, pistol shooting. And that one, I mean, I I played sports and did all kinds of crazy stuff um, at, at all kinds of levels all the way up. but at 13 was the first time I went out and I um, was saw a pistol competition unintentionally. I was at the range to sight in a hunting rifle and I saw one of these pistol competitions going on. And it was like, it was literally the epitome of love at first sight. I saw what they were doing. I was immediately entranced. My mom's like, let's go, let's go. I'm like, no, I'm not moving. I'm literally staying here. I remember us getting in a fight over like trying to leave. And I'm like, no, this is where I want to be. And, um, Luckily the, the people out there in the shooting community they're they're just awesome people. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, the shooting community is just amazing and very welcoming to new people, especially youth and stuff like that. And they kind of day that that immediate day took me in and I was just became obsessed with it from that point on. And it was something that has pervaded my life even till today. I mean, it became what I did.
1: Wow. And and from what I understand, you take you took it really far.
2: I did. Um, yeah. I, at, at one time at the, at the heat or height of my competing level um, I was in what could be considered one of the top 1% of pistol shooters in the world. Um, but within that, just like anything, when you reach quote unquote elite status in anything, it's like starting over within that elite. Right. So <laughs> there's, there's the, you're like, Oh yeah, I'm at the top of the game. And then in the, within that top of the game, Group It's a much smaller group of people that are at that level, but you're literally starting all over again to try to climb the ladder to to become the top of the top of the top of the top of the elite. So I was basically in the bottom rung of that top 1%, if you will. Um, So um, it was cool, but it's, you know, it's not like, I'm still starting over.
1: Yeah. Still starting over. It's still amazing. Like most human beings sit on the fucking couch and they're the first, the first, uh, the first person in their peer group to post about uh, that fucking tiger show that people are posting about in the- (laughs) I still haven't even seen that. Why would you, bro? That's that's not the game that you play. (laughs) No, not at all. Like you you, you don't take pride in like, you know what? I was the first to post about this tiger show. That's what most people like. That's the prizes that most people are winning these days. Wow. All right. Uh, Actually on that topic, I just Mm -hmm. bought my first pistol. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very cool. Still haven't shot it, but I have one.
2: Well, you know, you can you're only 7 hours away or an hour flight.
1: Yeah, is that a real invitation, bro? Cuz yeah, don't mess we'll, with me. I'll bring a tent and yeah, I'll bring just, my gun and we'll Just shoot let's that. just get it on the schedule and come up and visit and we'll go out and shoot. Okay? Deal. Plus it's like I can carry it with me because it's Nevada. Yes, it is. What what's your carry? Like do you have a carry gun?
2: Yeah, I've got a variety of them. I mean, uh kind of the old standby is a G- uh, Glock 19. Um, that's what I carry the most, but, uh, or used to carry the most, what I carry now the most is much easier and smaller. And it's a, um, it's either a Smith and Wesson shield nine millimeter or a, um, SIG Sauer three, six, five, nine millimeter. Um, they're smaller, easier to conceal, especially when in the summertime, when I'm wearing gym clothes, most of the time, um, it's much easier to actually stay concealed with a smaller pistol like that.
1: Do you wear like a belly band? Um, no, um,
2: I have you know i was i was an air marshal for a while and went through some of their training and different stuff before i got medically disqualified there as well um and the way that that. oh okay well some of the ways that they carry is it's kind of an appendix carry um but a modified version of that and uh, so i have a kind of a goofy holster from from
1: those days that i use wow i'd love to like learn more about that in person because i want to get my concealed carry soon and uh i don't know anything about it so
2: yeah happy to happy to talk about that whenever you want i love it all right what was your first car my first car um i was actually very excited about my first car because i purchased it it was a um 1976 international harvester scout 2 um and it was awesome but it didn't run when i bought it so it went to a uh transmission shop to get worked on and while it was there um it was out in the yard, and someone cut the locks in the yard, broke in there, stripped it, and, uh, and a lot of other stuff it wasn't just mine. And so that car went nowhere. My first car that I actually got to drive after that happened, my parents um, paid for half of another car, which I didn't get to choose, was a, uh, what was it, 80, 83 or 86? I think it was an 86. Um, S10 blazer, cherry red with a maroon cloth slash velourish interior. And it was so badly oxidized when I got it um, that it looked like ugly, ugly orange, faded orange. And I was like, this is my car? I just couldn't believe it because I had to pay for half of it and nowhere in my world would I've ever chosen something that ugly. Uh, but that was a, a big lesson for me from my dad in like how to take care of something and how to make it your own. And you know, his whole thing there was, yeah, the paint's oxidized, but you can, you know, you can compound it, you can wax it and you can bring it back to life. And, you know, uh, his thing was that by the time I had done that, I would basically take ownership of it and be careful with it. It took forever to compound. And I mean, I was, I was wiping myself out every day. And it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And my dad showed me what to do and showed me where I was messing up, but wouldn't help me do it. And um, it was a, it was a very big learning lesson for me in terms of, you know, First off, not everything is as it appears, like once you actually kind of do it. And then he was right. As soon as I finished cleaning that car up and weeks and weeks of that, it, uh, it, it gleamed. The paint looked almost brand new, you know, for as new as an old ass car like that could. But I was so proud of that thing. Like you couldn't lean on it. You couldn't breathe on it. You couldn't look at, the, look at the paint cross-eyed. I was so protective of it and I started taking care of it. And so it definitely had the,
1: it got the lesson for sure. Wow. What a powerful lesson. I can yeah. do hard things.
2: I definitely felt a little bit like the karate kid, just, you know, with the whole Mr. Miyagi wax on, wax off mm-hmm. thing. Not the same lesson because I didn't learn how to like karate chop or anything at that point, but.
1: Yeah, neither did he. So. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs>
2: but yeah, it was, uh, that was, you know, that was one of the first lessons I had with the car. That's a powerful lesson, bro. Mm-hmm. And what? that's actually where my love of cars really kind of started, I mean, I, my dad had cars and I always loved working with him on cars. So I've always kind of grown up around liking cars. And my mom does too, but that was when it became like, okay, I, like these things are pieces of art that move and they can be old or new or different or whatever. And they're just so cool. And that's really where that obsession kicked off.
1: I love it. Uh, how, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Reno, uh, Reno, Nevada. So I was, uh, I'm actually back living here again, um, but, was born here uh local went all the way up through uh college here locally um i lived in la for a, a short period of time when i was doing the, some modeling at the earlier ages and before for i realized the I re- yeah for the baby gap, <laughs> baby gap abercrombie those kind of things uh back when i but i realized i didn't like that so i was back here um during but growing up i, I say that like i grew up in reno i was born here lived here but my summers um, were spent in texas most of my mom's side of the family was down in texas and as soon as school got out for every year up as long as i could remember um actually it was every year up until basically college um summer or high, a little bit of high school summer would get out or school would get out in the summer we would leave that day that school got out or the day after and we'd go to texas and we'd spend the summer most of the summer in texas with our family we have a big family reunion every year and then kind of bounce around texas with the other family members hanging out and just Having a great time. So, um, it was a very, very cool. Most of my family were so close. Uh, my my cousins are more like brothers and sisters than they are cousins. I know them so well. I know their family. We we just are super, super close, and um, I cherish that. It's actually something that I've instilled in my own kids. And every year of their life, we've made the trip to Texas, you know, and done the same thing. And my cousins do that with their kids, and we're all together, and it's really
1: cool. What a powerful ritual. How old were you on your first day? my first what date date as in dating yeah as in like my first
2: date i think the first one that i would actually count i would have been uh probably 16 i did the you know let's go skating type things when with the kids well, that, you know, that's I'm, what i'm
1: talking about i'm not oh. talking about like that you got some no i know thing.
2: i just met a date where i took someone somewhere that would be about 16 um but the uh we did the skating rink thing i was probably
1: middle school seventh grade nice I love it. For us, it was like movie theaters in Brooklyn. All right, so you're you're a super super duper successful entrepreneur, especially in the e-commerce world. When did you fall in love with? Well, first of all, what was your first business?
2: Oh, my first business was. Um, I guess my very very first business was eBay. Yeah. So i I was I was buying. I was going around all the all the. So I actually worked at a heating supply store heating and air conditioning parts and stuff. And they had this clearance rack and I would go in and buy all the stuff on clearance and then list it at retail on, on eBay. And this was back in 2000, you know, early 2000, 2000, 2001. Um, And I said, I did that for a while. And then I actually got fired from that company uh, for following up too much about the raise they promised me after the first 60 days of work, which never occurred or even a review call to find out why I didn't get it, you know? So uh, I was like, you know, you guys promised me this. So like, I'm definitely going to follow up on it until I get it. And then they fired me for not, for for basically that. Um, So at that point, my first uh, true business, I started a window cleaning business after that. Um, I actually went to work for a window cleaning company um, that a friend of my mom's owned. And he really quickly demonstrated to me that, It wasn't rocket science and me with no business skills was already seeing like how crappily he was doing. And I was like, man, I can do this. And so that's kind of where I start. I quit working for him and started a business, literally created a DBA, printed up a bunch of flyers that I made on my computer, um, hired my sister and started canvassing neighborhoods, passing out flyers. And that day I was in business with a window cleaning company.
1: I love it. How much were you charging to
2: clean windows? Oh, God. At the beginning, I, I charged so much that I was almost going broke um, because I didn't charge enough. I, uh, I was basically doing a, like uh, a 1,500 square foot house. I would charge them like 60 bucks or something mm-hmm. like that. And I was taking, and it was, I didn't know what I was doing. So I was very slow at it. And basically, by the end of it, I was paying them to stay in their house because I was, <laughs> it was so bad. Um, I priced myself almost right out of business, but it was a learning lesson. I got clients, I did a good job, they kept hiring me. Um, they referred me to their friends and over time I learned how to charge better, um, and and price myself correctly. But, you know, I, it wasn't a matter of just getting out there and doing it. I didn't care, uh, that I didn't know it was still money. Yeah. I was working for probably a few dollars an hour by the end of it, especially with having my sister helping me, but Hey, it was, I was doing my own thing. So it didn't really matter. And I was experiencing and learning and challenging myself.
1: Yeah. That's a huge lesson is, uh, most people always want to get fucking paid. Like you were actually getting paid a few bucks an hour just to learn. Yeah. Like learning is so much is worth so much more than getting paid because learning is such a long-term investment. Imagine like, imagine the kids nowadays, like the generations nowadays, like actually went and interned somewhere or they went and, you know what? You know what I really like? Like the model where uh, there's like a teacher or like a master and then there's a student, Very like the martial mm-hmm. arts model. Yep. Where it's just like, you're here to learn, not fucking be a superstar yeah. yet. Like you don't, you don't have no place in being a superstar.
2: Yeah. But to be fair and to be honest, I wasn't trying to work cheaply. I just didn't know any better on how to price myself. So yeah. um, I got the benefit of it, but I, I literally just didn't know what I didn't know. It was unconscious incompetence. Um, You know, I maybe, just,
1: maybe you progressed faster this way because you actually like were hungry to get better. Oh, for sure. I think that definitely played a role in it. You know, because like, what if you already kind of knew? You'd be like, all right, well, I'm good. And then yep. eventually, you probably became better than a lot of the other cleaners. I mean, I know your personality type. You're like an OCD. Yeah. Like. Yeah, you're you're a lunatic. And we built a we built a very successful company, which I like, later. What does that mean? Successful. What does that? Um,
2: like? Basically, we were the second largest exterior building
1: maintenance company in in our area. In and how Nevada. much were you guys making? Um. So the reason I'm asking just to clarify is like because people have no no clue like they have correct. No
2: idea. Yeah, no. I I'm just trying to because I'm trying to separate. So there's there's more to the story. There is because as the window cleaning business grew, um, the worst part was window cleaning slowed down dramatically in the winter, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did commercial, which kept going, but we had to figure out a way to, I kept having to lay off employees as we grew and I didn't like that because I needed to keep them year round because I get them trained and everything else. So we figured out a Christmas light service that we added in that basically in a 60 day window of a Christmas light season, we would make more money to hanging Christmas lights than we would cleaning windows all year. I so I was just trying to separate that because that's not true window cleaning. It's not, someone could be like, Oh my God, I'm going to start a window cleaning business because I think the numbers are so amazing. And uh, so I would say we were doing 400 ish thousand a year window, maybe 500. And we were doing that's gross six, or net g- gross, 600, 600, to 800 in Christmas lights.
1: Wow. That's a million dollar plus business. Yeah. So what was the net on that?
2: Um, the the net was pretty high. We were probably running around thirty five percent on the windows, and more like thirty five to forty on the Christmas lights. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's a solid three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollars uh, a year in profit. Yep. Divide that and by twelve. What does that look like? We're at like thirty. 33 to 35 thousand dollars about that
2: and it was it was phenomenal it was so good i didn't know what the hell to do with it and so i did nothing intelligent with it and i basically like had i had fun and so did everybody around me you know i mean i it was so bad that i even used to throw raves like not a party but a rave Um, how old were you um and i was like 18 to 21 in that range.
1: Yeah, I mean, what else would you be doing at 18 to 21 at yeah. 35K a month? I yeah, mean, you're, I literally you're lucky partying, it wasn't even crazier. Yeah,
2: partying, doing, stu- like, didn't keep any of it, just spent it like it. Because I in my in what my world, like, of course, it's never going to end. Money doesn't, like, I'm making it. Like, when, why would it stop? I also, you know, built this company during the height of the, the basically, the economy explosive growth phase, you know, pre, pre-recession pre so, as far as I knew, I was God's gift to business because I could I was just growing so fast and so successfully during and anybody can grow a company during a boom time. Um, you know I had, I'd never grown it a company during a different time at that point. Um, but wh- my, the ice uh, disease that I told you I had, um, I actually had to have a cornea transplant because I was starting to go blind in that eye wow. and when when that happened, I couldn't. It was a two-year healing process. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't pick up stuff off, uh, pick up like anything that weighed anything over five pounds. Uh, and at the time, I was very involved in the business. It couldn't survive without me, even with the employees. The opportunity came to, to sell. And well, I actually wound up selling, didn't even have to go looking for someone to buy. I actually wound up selling to another a business partner who had started or thrown his business in with mine to make it a bigger window cleaning company at the time and then decided that he wanted to go be a firefighter. And then he didn't like being a firefighter. So he came back to window cleaning. So it was an easy transitionary exit, didn't even have to struggle through anything. And that was when I went, I'd kept dabbling through the internet during that whole time. But that was when I really went back full time. Or actually, I should say full time on the internet, um, because I was living off savings. And that just wasn't cool.
1: Yeah. So what what did you jump into next? Like now that you your eye was healed you you were probably hungry at that
2: Well, point. it was actually during the healing process because mm. like
1: i couldn't go i couldn't
2: do a normal job i couldn't even go get a real job because I, I wasn't supposed to be doing anything plus you're Maybe.
1: unemployable bro
2: yeah basically
1: like who's going to um, employ you you're a lunatic
2: Yeah, that's true. I was, I'm a, I'm a great worker and a terrible employee is the (laughs) best way to describe it. And so, yeah, I I got, I I was at home. I was like, Oh, let's turn the computer back on. Let's see what else is going on. So during that time, I kept doing the eBay thing during the window cleaning time. I still was doing eBay and I still had um, some other internet stuff that I was dabbling in some info product stuff, but it was just for fun. Like when I wasn't window cleaning, the internet was just a, a fun way to make money. It wasn't real to me at that point. So when I sold and I was realized I was living off savings. I started looking at what I was doing. I was like, okay, how do I turn this into something legitimate? And um, I became an eBay power seller, was doing really, really well. Um, I was actually a power seller before, but I grew as a, into a high, whatever, a higher level platinum power seller, whatever the crap they called it. Um, and I was selling, you know, quite a bit, but the problem was back then technology sucked donkey balls. So uh, there was, you had to go to the post office and weigh yeah. every package. Like, so if I was selling 50 or 70 packet or products a day, that's 50 packages The there was no, like you had to almost like manually track which shipping label, which couldn't even generate a shipping label. You had to copy and paste it into a spreadsheet or something else. And it was a hassle. My house was a warehouse and it was just awful. So I got out. I loved the a- aspect of selling physical products, but I hated the infrastructure that it required um, at-, at the time and the technology, which just wasn't there. So I stopped doing the physical product thing and I started doing info products more. I already had an info product at the time that I had created called how to, or called streak free profits, which was how to create your own window cleaning business. And then I created another product called cashing in on Christmas, which was how to start your own Christmas light business. I sold those via ClickBank and sales funnels. And um, that was where I really got my trial by fire in direct response online marketing and realizing that there's a lot of work and a lot of shit that has to happen in order to, make something sell online. And I realized that online was no difference than different than the online, offline world in terms of it being a real business. It was just a different medium. So I had to start treating it that way. And during that time, I got into direct linking and uh, Google AdWords and AdSense. And I, I, I kind of lived through all those times. And through it all, I kept staying with the info products and everything else. And I kept coming back to physical products because um, I liked them. Um, I liked the way they sold. I felt like I was selling something of actual value where I didn't have to spend a 37-page a sales letter trying to convince someone to buy my ebook. when I could just show them the product, the physical product and demonstrate it and they would want to buy it if it was something that they liked. Um, and, that, and then as technology evolved, I kept coming more and more back to physical products and then started applying, like e-commerce was super antiquated. It still is, to be honest. Um, was super antiquated so I would started applying without even thinking about it all my direct response knowledge and skill set and because that, that's how I grew my, my direct my window cleaning too was direct response but with mail um, so I, I had a background in that and I just started applying that to physical products and it started working really really well and people kept asking me what I was doing and I started teaching what I was doing and one thing led to another and that's really when I realized that's where I loved being was in the ecom space and that's really where I I could deliver the most
1: value. Can you give a short paragraph on your perspective of what direct response means? Yeah,
2: so direct response to me means tactical precision marketing, speaking to a very select focused group of, of a target audience. Um, I don't believe in... So the opposite of direct response is brand building. It is what Coca-Cola, what Pepsi, what all the big brands where they just throw ads up for the world to see. Everybody's my customer, Coca-Cola says, right? Well, not in my world because I am not, don't have the budgets for that. I'm not, I'm not a funded company where I have an unlimited supply of money to do shitty marketing. Um, in the case of marketing and advertising, um, I believe it was Eugene Schwartz who said that you know, 50% of my advertising is wasted. I know that. The problem is I don't know which 50%. Hmm. Um, and so I look at that and I go, okay, well, even in my case, always 50% of your advertising is going to be wasted. But if I can focus that in and make and stretch my dollar farther by talking only to the people who are the most likely best fit for my product, the laser focused audience and doing everything within your company speaks only to that and is so dialed in that it's actually polarizing to anybody else who's not your per- your customer that to me is direct response marketing
1: yeah get some people to love you get some people to be pissed off if you're not oh. doing if you're not doing those two things you're not doing direct response marketing correct got it perfect i love it if somebody wanted to learn direct response marketing and you and they were going to be on an island for a year what one book would you recommend that they take with them oh jeez one book um, for direct response marketing. I'm not saying for anything Yeah. Else. Oh, I know. Um, like, what is the book that's going to teach them the proper uh, foundations of direct response marketing so that they can learn other things a lot faster?
2: Yeah. Uh, I honestly, I don't believe there's one book that can teach that. I feel like it's a combina- combination of, of different elements tied together. Um, but honestly, um you couldn't go wrong with anything by Eugene Eugene Schwartz. Um, his stuff is amazing. Or um, Dan Kennedy's no BS approach. It's a good primer on.
1: Yeah, that's on where I started response.
2: too. Yeah, I think that would be a, a good a good primer.
1: So I've met you, and you've been doing a lot of different things since I've met you—from masterminds to info products to physical products to group coaching to now you have settled into revenue optimization. How did you know this was the thing?
2: So it's, it was always what we were doing the most of, even through all of those things in the mastermind, what we were teaching was revenue optimization in the info products, what we were teaching in our businesses, the econ businesses we owned, it was what was making them work was revenue optimization. So it really just came full circle when we realized that, that was like the core of everything that we did. And it's, it's what differentiated us from the world and from everybody else. Um, but how to like build, grow, scale, that's all we do now We is revenue optimization. We, we do it in the trenches every single day and we also teach it, but we, that's, that's it. How we got to that point um, was a whole lot of figuring shit out, falling on our faces, climbing back up, you know, trying things and realizing that we kept falling into the, the entrepreneur's trap of shiny objects more must be better, things like that. What really helped us get past that was a mental model called success by subtraction. Um, and there's you know, a mental, another mental model that everybody knows of is um, the 80-20 rule or you know, the Pareto principle. That's, that's a type of mental model. Um, in our case, um, success by subtraction is the one that really hit both, and I say we, I mean myself and Matt Stafford, my business partner. Um, what really hit us. Because at one time, Matt and I together, we had BGS, we had Black Label, we had three different e-com brands. Um, Matt had, um, and we we worked on a Canvas, a POD platform that he was partners in, in Canada. Um, And then we had like five or six other side projects slash consulting projects because, you know, got to have multiple streams of income, got to cast a wider net, blah, 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 all the bullshit we all believe. And we realized that, nothing was, was moving forward fast. Everything was kind of muddling along. And the, the mental model of success by subtraction talks about, um, you know, the only way something's going to move forward is if it gets attention and resources and everything else. So an example I can give you is, so picture like a ball of energy, like just this big burning ball of energy. And then um, it's just in a certain in a unit, it's got to come out. And it comes out in, the, in where, where your focuses are. So in our case, we had like 11 different focuses in terms of businesses and side hustles and things that we were doing. So picture basically 11 different arrows pointing out all different directions from this ball of energy. And then boom, we release the energy. And what happens? It dissipates because the energy tries to go in 11 different directions at once and, and very quickly becomes insubstantial and ineffective. Whereas with the teaching of simplicity and folk by, by subtraction, or excuse me, success by subtraction and simplicity and focus is cut away all the crap that's not truly important and not truly what your focus should be. And then you have that ball of energy. And then let's say you have the one focus, the one thing that makes a difference in your world and it goes forward. And then you release that same ball of energy. And what happens? It stays in one powerful ball and just charges forward and makes a difference. And that's what we've started believing and have had proven to us over and over and over again. So little by little, we started having to have hard talks with ourselves and be honest and go, okay, this is a distraction. This isn't what we're really good at this. We're doing this to be like the cool kids and start cutting those things away. And yeah, it's a, it's expensive because you have time, money, blood, sweat, tears, all of that invested in each of those projects. So there, it's like your children, you're cutting away one of your children, but you know, those are, those children are, are the, They're not really your children. They're just the hangers on. They're not actually, you know, related to you. They're not that you're not, they're not your spawn. They're not the ones you should be focusing on. I hate the children analogy because I want to take care of all children. So it's really not working for me. It's an analogy, but because you're an entrepreneur, (laughs) you know, but uh, that's what we had to do. We had to start cutting away all those businesses. And and as we kept focusing down and focusing down and focusing down through this um, success by subtraction model, we realized our true gift and what we are the absolute best at is this process of revenue optimization. And if we just do more of that, we're going to get what we want. We're going to help the people we want to help. And we're going to be able to make a bigger impact in the world. I love it.
1: All right. Short answer, short answer portion. What advice do you have for a person that has already achieved some success in entrepreneurship, but wants to achieve more and can't seem to figure out how to bust through uh, some sort of plateau. So, short answer there would be to
2: stick with what you're doing and and, and not look for quick fixes or outside solutions that basically are distractions. You know, forget the shiny object thing. Forget that, oh, the grass might be greener over there. I should try that. The number one thing that will actually prove success is just stick with it.
1: The grass is greener where you water it. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. True. I love it. Top three mistakes in order of priority you see entrepreneurs making on all levels.
2: Number one mistake um, on all levels is bro deals. Making a deal with another, uh, either a business partner or a consulting agreement or a joint venture opportunity or whatever and just being like, all right, let's go do this and then you go, go do it without actually taking the time to put a agreement together that protects everybody. Um, everybody does these, and I've been burned by more bro deals than I can even want to admit to. You've been a part of witnessing my fallout from a lot of those.
1: We had a bro deal. We did. When I sold the company. Yep, well, that's true. We, we did have a bro
2: deal. Um, that could have went shitty. You, it could have, but you, you kept the integrity and it didn't. And it was amazing. Um, and it was honestly not what we expected. Um, Not because of you, but just because of general practice. I get it.
1: Expect the unexpected, right?
2: Yep. So that would be the big thing. Um, And the big reason to do it is agreements and contracts. They're not written for the sunshine. They're written for the rainy days when things start falling apart. And then if that's in place, everything gets handled much easier. Um, So that's, that's the big one. Um, Another one would be, not having someone to advise you on finances as you run a company and, how to, and what to do with your money and how to manage it better from a company perspective. Um, like everybody, when they're starting out, they co-mingle funds and they just goof stuff up. And um, it's, it's, can be a, you can grow much more effectively and much more stress-free if you just take care of your finances correctly. And then the third mistake is listening to the bullshit. Don't listen to the noise that's out there. Um, Everybody's so concerned with what so-and-so is doing or so-and-so said or what so-and-so showed on their video or whatever else, just cut all that bullshit out. Um, I know you don't and I don't either. Like I don't watch the news. I haven't watched the news since 2009 because I made the decision back then that that's all bullshit. I don't need that negativity in my life and I, there's other stuff I'm gonna focus on. I haven't um, watched
1: the news since Tim Ferriss in 4-Hour Workweek told me to stop watching the news. <laughs> there you go. So, but that's the same
2: thing with all the, all the noise and the bullshit and, and, the, and people get so worked up about that and they, they, they start caring more about all that stuff than their own self-worth or their own focus and their own things that's, that are actually important. And all that outside shit is just noise. It's not
1: worth the focus. I love it. What are the current? What's like the current project that you're really excited about?
2: Uh, so, current project. We're actually about a week, maybe a week and a half away from launching it to the world. Um, is our beginner's course called Ecom Academy? Uh, so, build, grow, scale. For, since Matt and I partnered up. And decided to make this our focus. We decided that we really wanted to focus on established companies and go kind of from a good to great model of helping companies that are, be, that are good become great. And as we were doing that, our actual goal is to really make a, a change and impact the e commerce industry as a whole and basically disrupt it. And we realized that the e com companies of tomorrow are the ones that are being started today, and we're doing nothing to help them. We're literally telling them, hey, there's nothing good out there. So go buy somebody else's crap, start your store and then come to us and we'll fix it. And we're like, that is such the wrong approach. And we have the infrastructure and the ability and the data to deliver the proper way to build an e-commerce brand from the ground up. But yet we're not delivering it to the audience. We're not sharing it with the world. And that's, that's pretty shitty of us to do that. So six months ago, we actually made the commitment to, Hey, this needs to be a focus for us We're we're doing the market a disservice if we don't do this. Um, So we put our team together and our team now is uh, like 63 people strong full time. Wow. And uh, they're literally the the best experts there are in the world of e-commerce. And we put together a multi-module. I think it's currently 12 plus modules of the beginner's version of how to start an e-commerce brand from the ground up and get it into operation without by trying to you know, shortcut their learning curve and prevent them from making a lot of the mistakes other brands do. So I'm super excited about that because I almost, it's new, it's a new project, which I like, but I feel like it allows me to sort of right a wrong or that I, a, a, a disservice that I had been doing to the, the market and that our team has been just doing because we have, we have this stuff, we should be making it available to them. So I'm excited to kind of right that wrong
1: yeah well, I honestly, bro, like do I have your permission to jump in hundred percent It's not wrong bro like the you wouldn't have got to this point if you didn't start at that point, so like it's just part of the process you know some people start in the beginning and they never work their way up to the top. You guys started at the top and now you're working your way back, and like it's just it's beautiful, whatever. It looked like, you know, like it's just beautiful. Whatever it looked like, because like what you guys are doing, nobody's doing out there. Ezra, Ezra does like from Amazon to uh, Shopify and then face and then like Facebook ads and that stuff. But like you do, you guys do something very specific. It's just like you guys teach people how to improve their Shopify stores and keep more money in them, and yep. not I, I don't know anybody else doing it. So people are just lucky. That you guys are gonna put out a beginners course, which I'm definitely gonna check out. Like, there's a lot of birth defects because, like, what what was happening is like people have birth defects when they get to good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's hard to get the great until. So it might have even been easier for a lot of people to start out from the beginning and then get to great there because they're but uh, say lovey right that our life. That's the way it looks. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. All right, so. What time? All right. I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Yeah, we'll fire them going. off. What does what your daily life look like? What time do you go to bed?
2: Uh, I go to bed usually 9, 930, if not a little bit. Early. That's usually the time the lights go out. I usually go in bed a little bit earlier because I'm trying, I've got young kids, eight and four. So I'm trying to get them to bed as early as I can. Yeah. Um, And, and our household kind of shuts down once they're asleep. Um, Plus I, I like, I used to be a night owl. I'm not anymore. I'm an old man. I like to go to sleep. And then I, so that's the time I go to bed, get up. um, Well, I get up the first time right now about 10.30. I get up again about 1.30 because I've got a puppy. So we're always, you know, letting her out. Um, But I get up in the morning when my alarm goes off, usually about, depending on the day, but it's it's basically about six o'clock, sometimes Uh, six o'clock I get up. Uh, start getting ready a little bit, which is basically just get my morning routine going, do my do my daily gratitude, my um, my little bit of quasi journaling that I do every day that works for me, and then uh, make my make my morning drink and hop in the car and go to the gym. And I'm at the gym for about 40 minutes. Uh, when I come home, uh, in a, in a normal non COVID world, uh, I come home, the kids are getting ready for school. I finish helping them get breakfast and ready for school, and then. I take one or both of them to school, have my little one-on-one time or one-on-two time with them in the car, then take them to school, then I go to start my work day at that point.
1: I love it. What what, what does your training look like? Just like a rough outlook. Uh,
2: yeah, so um, I am five days a week. Actually, um, Sometimes, or no, I shouldn't say that. That's a lie. I am six days a week, sometimes seven. Um, and it is... Um, it, we change it up, but it's t- typically a bodybuilder mixed with functional type bodybuilding workouts, um, high volume training mixed with, you know, heavy, heavy sets and stuff like that. And we rotate. So Monday, Monday back, Tuesday, chest, Wednesday, heavy legs, Thursday, shoulders, Friday, arms, Saturday recovery legs. And we throw abs and calves in there a couple times a week. I love it.
1: What does your food intake
2: look like?
1: Like what kind of stuff do you
2: eat? so i'm I'm big on intermittent fasting, so i um, my wife and I both fast so How many my, hours? uh I think what am i I always do the math wrong, but I'm basically i think eight and whatever the difference is eight and 16, eight. 16, 16, eight. yeah nice. um so I start eating my first meals usually around twelve to one sometimes a little bit later. I don't really worry about the start time too much um I usually only eat two two meals a day unless I feel like it. Um, and my food is pretty, pretty bland and boring. Um, my stomach, I always have a weird stomach. So, so sometimes things sit well, sometimes things don't. So I eat a lot of, a lot of rice, a lot of eggs, a lot of meat. I'm a big meat guy. Um, a lot of bacon, grass fed butter. Um, I definitely don't believe in the whole bacon is butter and butter or bacon is bad and butter is bad and all that. I don't believe in that cholesterol crap. Um, and Proving my my blood levels, my my medical checkups have proven that for me at least it works. So I do that. I eat a lot of uh, no no pastas, no dairy at all, at all, pretty much, unless there's something in. I'm not an anal about it, but I don't drink milk or um, I try not to eat too much cheese, and uh, I don't eat any any kind of pastas or grains for the most part, unless they're unless it's rice or something along those lines.
1: Makes sense. Uh, what kind of what kind of house do you live in? Um, I live
2: in a single-story Mediterranean-style
1: uh, house on an acre. Oh, that, that was my next question. Is it on land? Do you guys yeah. grow any food on there? Nope. I mean, we've, we've dabbled with the goofy
2: garden type stuff, but neither one of us sticks to it enough. And the, the kids usually and the dogs go play through it and ruin everything. So we don't have a garden. We have a gazillion plants and trees and we've got almost a hundred trees in our backyard uh, wow. that, I, that I've planted. Cause I'm a, I love landscaping.
1: I love it. That's incredible.
2: Uh, yeah. It's the it's crazy. It's your house
1: is, it, is it like a big house.
2: Yeah. It's okay. I mean, it's okay. It's 4,700 square feet. Wow. Um, it's my, my backyard patio. I put that patio in when we moved and uh, there was nothing in our backyard and it was crazy because I remember Putting down the patio and realizing that just the backyard patio was bigger than the house Tabitha and I had lived in previous to that. Um, I love it. And that was, it was just insane. Like the, our, our master bedroom is bigger than all the bedrooms combined in any house we've ever lived in before. Um, so it, it's definitely what it was a crazy shock when we bought this place. And just like, is wow. it a
1: lot to maintain? It is. Um,
2: it definitely is a lot to clean, especially when you when you like we have tons of stuff like we're i'd love to say we're minimalist but we are so not like there's just there's stuff everywhere and we're into so many things sports and different things like me me and my gun stuff and my shooting and my cars and restoring this and doing that like there's stuff everywhere and our house looks like a tornado went off all the time so but it's home and you know it's it's real it's our house is not a show house we we live in our house and uh it's it's part of it but yeah it's definitely a lot more effort to keep clean and we don't have a housekeeper um, or a cook or anything fancy like that. I would, my wife would love to have both of those, but I've been somewhat resistant to it. um, And we haven't done that yet. Uh, But crazily enough, as big as it is, like my wife wants still wants to go bigger and I'm not opposed to it either because there's little aspects that I would like, like more as a accomplishment that I've made that I've done this and a bucket list type of thing than actually needing the square footage.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Is there enough space on the acre for me to pitch a tent or no?
2: Oh, yeah. We actually have a campground wow. built into our backyard that's hidden from the house that you can't see. It's got its own fire pit and table and uh, huge rocks and everything. It looks like it, basically we kind of modeled it after Tahoe. So, we planted all these big pine trees and you have to cross a dry creek to get there. And it's wow. in the back, very back corner of the, of the property. I love it. Yeah. What kind
1: of car are you driving now as your daily driver? Oh God, that, that rotates,
2: but the one that's been getting the most mileage right now, um, since my Broncos in pieces, uh, is my McLaren. Nice. Nice. How do you like having a McLaren? I love it now that I finally let myself have one and not for the way it's, it's not nearly the status symbol that people think that I would buy this car for. For me, it was more, it's more of a recognition of overcoming my own limitations and mm-hmm. self worth and self belief stuff I actually you probably read it I wrote, wrote that huge long, basically novel of a post about it, but so I, I every time I get in the car every time I look at the car it's literally like a reaffirmation and a like yeah bro, like you are worth it, you are good enough you you do deserve the things that you promise yourself for those of you guys who are listening to this and wondering what the hell am I talking about in a, in a nutshell, I had major self worth and I still fight with it, but issues around around that and being enough and deserving of things that I set, you know, targets or goals where the reward. There were big ones. The reward would be okay if I hit this thing, I would buy myself this McLaren. That that was in 2014. Took me and five other times through from 2014 on. I set the McLaren as a goal, and I hit all those goals, and I never gave myself to McLaren. I talked myself out of it because I wasn't good enough, or it wasn't a hard enough goal, or for whatever reason. And it took until 18, 18 months ago. not even Yeah, almost, no, 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 not even 18 months. About 11, 12 months ago, maybe a year ago, that I finally did it. And it took the help of my wife and my business partner and um, a lot to get me to finally come around to that. So it's a very, very big reminder to me whenever I get in it. Plus, it's just fun as hell and I love cars. It's just like, it's... To me, it's like a Picasso on wheels. It's just so sexy. It's so cool.
1: I love you, bro. I love you so much. <laughs> I love uh, you too, bro. Because you know what? I see a lot of what you say um, inside of myself. You know, like the what really helped for me with the self-worth and the not enough thing was realizing like how I speak to myself internally mm-hmm. and being like, oh my God, like if, if another human being spoke to me like this, I would rip their face. Into- oh, yeah.
2: We would never be friends with ourselves if we had that choice, ability to like, not be friends so, with ourselves. Right? So <laughs> what I
1: started doing um, in the last few weeks, which was one of the catalysts for well, a few months, the catalyst for this podcast was I realized that I can change the way that I speak to myself and I can change the way that I feel on a regular basis and allow myself to feel things that I wasn't allowing myself to feel because I wasn't good enough or worthy of feeling those things and uh and everything is transformed since that moment when i truly fell in love with myself
2: yeah i 100 percent agree with that with that i mean self-talk is huge um and i've become more and more aware of it over the years and especially with you know the stuff we've done recently has made a huge impact for sure
1: for sure all right i got a couple more questions if you weren't an entrepreneur who would you be if i wasn't an entrepreneur yes um
2: I think I'd want to be some kind of athlete or performer, something, something out there challenging that, you know, such a very small percentage of the population gets to do. Porn star. Porn star would be awesome. But you know, I also like being married and having kids and that's not really conducive. Yeah, I mean, negotiations,
1: right? <laughs> uh, what is one thing that you would love to transform in the world?
2: Actually, this is interesting because this is a conversation we've been having a lot right lately with my wife and with um, my uh one of my coaches um, that's been—I always—I always believe in having mentors and coaches, and this is one that's helping me kind of grow myself. Is, is that I—I'm still figuring out my my true purpose beyond BGS and what I'm supposed to do. But the the thing that seems to be the most exciting to me that I that I've been wanting to do forever um, is I want to, I want to figure, I want to develop some sort of program, trainings, books, seminars, whatever they happen to be, to help. The youth, like growing up, realizing that there's alternatives to college that if they're in the entrepreneurial world to give them the resources and the leg up education that they can do to just kind of achieve more, get more, regardless of what they wanna do in life. Um, and it, it stems from actually going back to the car. Like it happens all the time. Like I'll pull up to the gas station. And I think about fancy cars for a second. I, people think that fancy cars get girls. I actually know what it's like to be a hot girl now because the car doesn't attract women, the car attracts dudes. And it's usually either teenage boys or younger, or 50 to 60 year old men or older. That's who gets attracted to the McLaren. So if you're buying a car to think you're gonna get chicks with it, it's the exact opposite, unless that's the kind of thing you like. But anyway, when I take the car, I'll be at the gas station, without fail, some kid will come up to me, some like high school age kid or middle school age kids, and they'll say something along the lines of, man, that's such an awesome car. Man, I'll never be able to get that. Or I wish I could have something along those lines. And my heart like breaks every time I hear that because that's, they can achieve that. And I, I think to myself, like I have 30 seconds right now and I'll never see this kid again in my life. What can I say? What can I do? What can I give him or her to help them to give them an opportunity to, get, to, to maybe light the spark of belief that they can achieve this or that this is possible because i do believe it is and so i'm trying to figure out how i can do that and what that can be um and i that's that's
1: what i'm working on i'd love to brainstorm with you when i come down or up to reno uh because the teens and youth is something that i've been working with for a really long time that would be awesome that really like speaks to my heart all and right, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that when I see you. If you were a food, what food would you be? Bacon. Wow, I love it. If you were an animal, what kind of animal would you be?
2: Oh, good one. Um, I'd be a, like a Jaguar because they're badass. Ooh, I like it. Sexy
1: too. Mm-hmm. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be?
2: Oh, God. I think I'd go for a McLaren right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd be a McLaren. Sleek, sexy. Mm-hmm. Super. What is your Enneagram number?
2: Oh you God! Know what that uh, is? Yeah, I don't know what my number. Um, I think I'm I'm seven eight six. I think.
1: Ooh, or Interesting.
2: I think. Um, I could look. I could look it up, but I think that's yeah. what it is.
1: Okay, I- I'd love to hear. I- I'd love to hear personally what it is. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. If you were dying, what would be your last meal? Vietnamese flame broiled pork
2: over vermicelli rice noodles with fried egg and fish sauce.
1: Wow. That is a sexy meal. It is. What would be the last piece of advice you, want, you would wanna to give to the next generation if you were dying?
2: I would say that it is to buck the norms, ignore the social norms and live a contrarian life because life is meant to be lived to the fullest and whatever that means to you. Just don't let society dictate what that life is for you because it doesn't have to be a monetary life. It can, you can have the most amazing life in the world if you live it on your terms and you just pay attention to how you structure it because there's ways to make anything happen. You want to live in the islands? You can live in the islands and not have a penny. Like it can all happen. For sure.
1: Uh, last line on your tombstone. One sentence. 100% worn out.
2: <laughs> I want to be <laughs> yeah. used, used up and abused and I, I, don't want to, I don't want a perfect corpse when I die. I want to be a, used and abused and you know, just a, totally used up every bit of my body.
1: Where are my wheels? <laughs> yeah. Uh, last experience. You're dying. This is the last experience. It could be as long or short as you want, but you are going to die. What is the last experience that you want to experience? And with who?
2: Uh, last experience that I would want to experience would be a day on the beach in the tropics with my wife and kids. Just, just the four of us, just together, just playing, doing what we like to do. And uh, that'd be a good way to go out. That one always makes me cry. Yeah, I'm about to cry right now.
1: <laughs> what, one book that you would recommend that every single human being could benefit from reading from your perspective.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so Universal would be Richest Man in Babylon. Well,
1: that's it. I would like to appreciate you on the deepest level for being a guest on my show and being courageous enough to show up
2: you totally uh, welcome. I didn't know what, I was, what to expect, though, because that's the thing with you. You never know what to expect with you. So <laughs> it was definitely a little bit of apprehension. I, don't, I normally do a lot of podcasts, but never do I mo- go into them like, what the heck's going to happen?
1: <laughs> For sure. If people want to know more about Tanner Larson, if they want to find you, if they want to learn more about e-com or any of your other projects that you're doing, where could they find you and how could yep. they reach you? Best and easiest way to,
2: to find us and everything we're doing is at buildgrowscale.com. Everything is there, links to everything, to me, to everybody, to everything we're doing.
1: I love it. Thank you so much, bro. I love you. Thank you for joining me. And I would love to have you on another, get another time.
2: Absolutely. Loved it, bro. Thank you again and love you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Alchemy of Self podcast. If you resonate with our message, please show us some love by hitting the subscribe button and giving us a like. You can also visit our website at www.romzah.com to continue your journey of self-discovery and keep up with our latest offerings. With love and harmony from all of us at the Alchemy of Self podcast.